Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm Roberto Mazza, your host, and today my guest is Bedros Dermatoski. Bedros is an associate professor of modern Middle Eastern history at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. He's the author of an important book about Ottoman history, Shattered Dreams of Revolution, but he's also the co-editor of the Routledge Handbook of Jerusalem, which is uh, my companion, is always on my desk, as I get a lot of information about the city of Jerusalem. More importantly, Bedros was born and raised in Jerusalem. Bedros, welcome. Welcome, Roberto. Thank you very much for inviting me to your podcast. So, Bedros, the usual question that I ask to all my guests, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? Well, I was uh, born and raised in the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem, so uh, the east side, and there is a major difference, as you know, between the west side of Jerusalem and the east side. I was raised in the Muslim quarter uh, with the uh, with the Islamic culture, with Christian culture, and I went to school at, at the Armenian quarter, and I graduated from the school in the Armenian quarter. And uh, for me, Jerusalem is home. The old city of Jerusalem is a home, homeland. And uh, it's very close to my heart. Uh, I spent many times, many, uh, you know, part of my life in the old city. Uh, uh, I grew up in the Via Dolorosa section, uh, which is uh, close to El Wad. Al-Wad, the Al-Wad street, Shara Al-Wad. And, uh, you know, my life was East Jerusalem to that extent. I rarely, rarely went to West Jerusalem. Uh, I'm a gra- graduate of the St. Tarkmanchat, St. Tarkmanchat School, the Armenian School, the Holy Translator School in the Armenian culture. I spent a lot of time in the Armenian culture. I went to the Armenian social club there, the Homentmen. Uh, that was kind of uh, an important place for me, uh, both uh, politically, ideologically. And uh, my first exposure to the West, to the West Jerusalem, was uh, when I started my undergraduate studies in at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. So that was a kind of a transformation, being uh, uh, exposed now to the Israeli culture, politics, but again, uh, I, I remain and remained uh, very much embedded within the Palestinian culture, uh, Islamic culture in the old city of Jerusalem, in the Islamic culture. And there is a major difference between those who grew up within the Armenian culture, in the confines of the old, confines of the Armenian convent, 
and those who grew up in the different parts of the uh, of the uh, old city or outside the city. Uh, if you read my article, pa Armenians of Palestine between 1914 and 19, 1918 and 1948, you would see that there are many classes of Armenians. So you have Armenians who are living outside the uh, old city. Those are well-to-do Armenians who started moving out of the old city during the interwar period and, and lived in the uh, rich neighborhoods of uh, of uh, of uh, you know uh, uh, the German colony, the Greek colony, uh, and other parts of West Jerusalem. This is the beginning of uh, the formation of a Palestinian bourgeoisie uh, uh, within uh, the West Jerusalem. And all of these, all of most of these houses were confiscated actually after 1948, as you know. Then you have Armenians who lived in the Armenian quarter, and uh, you know uh, and. Uh, lived there and their children uh, uh, grew up there. And then you have another or uh, another category of Armenians who grew up outside the confines of the uh, of the Armenian convent or the Armenian quarter. Those usually have a different type of identity. You know, it's Armenians are a minority, but within these minority, there are multiple levels of minority. You are, you are uh, the part of the uh, majority of the minority, let's say, which is the Armenian Orthodox, then uh, living in the Armenian convent or living outside the confines of the old city. Then you have Armenian Catholics who live around the Muslim Muslim neighborhood, Islamic quarter, because there is the Armenian Catholic convent uh, there in the Islamic, uh, in the Muslim quarter. And those have a kind of a different identity. Uh, all right. So. These are micro differences, but you would feel them if you are part of the community. All right. So um, I rarely went to the West Jerusalem as a, as a kid. Uh, of course, I grew up during the first Intifada and uh, uh, I felt the first Intifada uh, very uh, closely. Uh, I know people who were killed by the IDF soldiers. Uh, I grew up in a period of conflict. Unlike other Armenians who lived in the Armenian quarter, were in a much safer situation because the Armenian convent, the cathedral, where um, where many Armenians live, families actually closes the door at ten, the convent door, and that's it. They're inside safe. But the other Armenians who live in the Muslim quarter, other places, were more exposed and vulnerable to the to the conflict. So, as an Armenian, it didn't make difference because. Uh, if you're not uh, if you're not an Israeli, you're the other. So I was I, I used to be uh, stopped by the IDF, uh, checked and uh, harassed sometimes. And uh, of course, uh, because even if I told them I'm Armenian, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter because if you're not an Israeli, you're the other. And the other is the other, the Palestinian, the uh, Arabs, the whatever you are, Christian or not Christian. So it's the other. Then uh, when I graduated from uh, high school, the Armenian school, I attended the Hebrew University. That was a major transformation for me. Uh, I think uh, Hebrew University provides an excellent education. Uh, my, uh, uh, my Hebrew wasn't that excellent, so uh, I had to take Hebrew classes at the same time as uh, I was uh, uh, pursuing my undergraduate and the teaching language was Hebrew as a matter of fact and it was very difficult for me to uh, really uh, co-opt with the uh, with the challenge of uh, understanding the lectures which were for example I did an undergraduate in political science and Islamic and Middle Eastern studies imagine you're sitting here your first day in the class and uh, the professor Zev Sternel, who passed away a few, few years ago, is talking about political philosophy, and you don't understand. You don't understand two words within the sentence you've got. But I had close friends, and those friends happened to be uh, from Latin America, Jews from Latin America, who were facing the same problem, and also Palestinians from East Jerusalem who attends, uh, attended the Hebrew University. As a matter of fact, there's a major contingent now of uh, Palestinians from East Jerusalem who attend the uh, Hebrew University. As a matter of fact, there are about 200 students from East Jerusalem who are uh, doing the Mechit.
now, which is in Rothberg School, is the preparatory program to enter the Hebrew University. And then I got obsessed with the Middle East, Middle East uh, history, culture, Islamic culture, and uh, specifically Islam as a religion, culture, entity. And hence, when I graduated uh, from the Hebrew University, I started my graduate studies there, and then the second intifada began in the year of 2000, and then I decided that I have to leave Jerusalem, uh, and uh, I, I went to pursue my PhD at Columbia University. But Jerusalem remains an important part of my life. As a matter of fact, for Armenians, they have a unique identity, which is the Jerusalemite identity. They call themselves a Sarimahai, which means Armenians of Jerusalem. And this identity is different than the Armenians who live in Haifa or Yaffa. And for Armenians of Haifa and Yaffa, they consider the, uh, the Jerusalem as the nucleus, nucleus of Armenian identity, culture, and politics. So again, uh, the Armenians of Jerusalem, Armenian Jerusalem to that extent, I call it Armenian Jerusalem because Armenian presence in Jerusalem goes, goes back to two, uh, two, 2000 years, started with the, uh, uh, with the Armenian uh, contingent uh, with, with Alexander the uh, Great, who, who uh, settled the army, settled that battalion, settled in what's today the Armenian quarter. It became to be known as the Armenian Street. And eventually, we have the beginning of uh, of the of uh, Christian Armenian heritage, which starts in the first century and so on. By the fourth century, there is a strong presence because Armenians from Armenia actually came as pilgrims and stayed there. So eventually, you have the formation of the Armenian Patriarchate and the local local Armenian community. Now, there is a difference between the local Armenian community and those who came after the Armenian genocide in 1950. The locals called, called themselves as Karakatsi, meaning the local inhabitants, and they're much more emerged with the, with the Palestinian culture. Their first language is Arabic, and they, their cuisine is to a certain extent very similar to the Palestinian cuisine, and they speak Armenian in a different dialect. Whereas those who came after the genocide were Armenians from different parts of the Ottoman Empire, from different parts of Cilicia, from Aintab, Marash. For example, when my uh, grandparents came from Lebanon in the early 1930s and during the mandate period, they settled in the same neighborhood that we still live in, in the same house that belongs to uh, the Husseini family. All right, so you know, uh, Hussein and Nashashibi, they own a lot of properties. It's Wakfa'a'ili, uh, as they say. And uh, to that extent, they brought with them their own cuisine, their own culture. But this does not mean that the, the and, and locals preferred, referred to them actually as Zuwar, as the visitors. So you have the locals who have a different identity, and then the Zuwar who came, who didn't speak a word of Arabic. They spoke Turkish among each other and to a certain extent Armenian, but they came from bringing with them their cultures, their uh, their professions, and eventually started uh, growing and dominating the Armenian community with Jerusalem. But even though that they came from uh, from the Ottoman Empire, still they brought with them their own separate identities, which are based as on regional identities. These means this means that, for example, my grandfather who came from Marash, Marash in in Cilicia, uh, he attended the Marash uh, Club, which which is today there is the select restaurant near the police station, and that used to be the Marash Club, and those Marash Armenians who, who used to go there. One thing we have to understand that usually people don't don't really perceive it is that Armenians have of Jerusalem have hybrid identity, or at least used to have. I do consider myself as Marash Situ, as a descendant of Marash Armenian. You might be a, a Palestinian, you might have influenced by Arab culture, you might be Marash, you might be Jerusalemite, you might be Christian, you might be Orthodox Christian or Catholic Christian. There is, there is a multiple level of uh, hybridity within Armenian identity. And Armenians of Jerusalem is a very, are a very cosmopolitan, uh, cosmopolitan community. 
And uh, I wouldn't consider identity as a solid factor. And that's how I grew up with multiple identities, with hybrid identities, uh, five languages, I should say, Armenian, Arabic, English, Hebrew, and Turkish. Of course, the Turkish that um, uh, was spoken in the house is Ottoman Turkish. It's a, it's a Marash dialect. And that's how I grew up with the basis of Turkish. And then I pursued learning Ottoman and, uh, you know, I'm fluent in Turkish too. And add to that different languages too. I was part of Jerusalem. And, you know, Jerusalem, it's not an isolated city. Uh, millions of tourists visited, visit, visit from different off parts of the world. So it makes a major, major uh, uh, place of uh, node, node actually, of uh, international point of uh, of uh, uh, interaction and uh, communication and growing up on Via Dolorosa, which was uh, which is part of the pilgrimage route of all Christian pilgrims who visit Jerusalem is uh, makes a lot of difference of understanding the uh, culture importance of Jerusalem. I want to say, wow, first of all, because you answered a lot of my questions that I was going to ask you. And secondly, because you have such a fascinating not only life, but also all of these identities that connect to each other and made me think about a puzzle and how you're able to, not only you, but the community to keep that puzzle working. And uh, I want to ask you something about, uh, you know, the perception of the Armenians and of the uh, Armenian Jerusalem, because from the outside, often you just get the sense that there is an Armenian quarter and there are Armenians in Jerusalem, but we don't know much about them. So is there an Armenian Jerusalem? Yes, there is Armenian Jerusalem, actually, because it has a unique identity. As once upon a time, Armenian Armenians of Jerusalem used to have 72 convents in Jerusalem, uh, churches. Uh, this is from the uh, thousand years ago. And even during the school years, the school even the, during the high school, uh, we used to take one course, one class taught by Dr. Roberta Irvine, an arminologist, a very prominent arminologist. She teaches nowadays at the St. Uh, Nurses Seminary in Armonk in New York. Uh, she taught us classical Armenian. That's another thing that's unique about Jerusalem, where we studied classical Armenian at the age of 12. And by the age of seven, 16, we read classical Armenian texts from the fifth century. You can't find this in any school teaching uh, uh, classical Armenian, which was uh, which was the language that was uh, used in the uh, fourth, fifth, sixth century until the until the emergence of modern West and East Armenian in the nineteenth century. So that's another important thing. But she used to teach a course actually that was called Armenian Jerusalem, Armenian Jerusalem. And the course was based on visiting sites where Armenians were present. And most of these sites are today uh, kind of do not exist. And there are shops and, uh, and other housings uh, in these sites. But again, this is a very unique importance. I would say outside Armenia, outside Armenia, the most precious and most, uh, most important uh, uh, important site for Armenians is is Jerusalem because of its antiquity, because of its importance of culture, religious, and it, and don't don't uh, don't forget that Armenians own more than Catholics, Latins or Latin Catholics major portions of the important holy sites within Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Think of the Holy Sepulchre, for example. After the Greeks. Armenians are the most important uh, possessors, let's say, of the of the holy places in holy holy sections of Jer of the holy sepulchre, more than the Catholics, who represent one point I don't know above billion population, whereas Armenians today are twelve million population, and this is another important factor about the Armenian Jerusalem. It's not only about Jerusalem of, as, as a holy city, but again about Armenian presence in Jerusalem and the importance that Armenians have in Jerusalem in terms of uh, religious sites, cultural sites. And again, until today, we have a pilgrimage that still goes on into, into Jerusalem by Armenians 
who visit Jerusalem as part of visiting also Armenian Jerusalem, not only as the visit to the Holy Land, but also visiting Armenian Jerusalem and being introduced to the Armenian treasures and the cultures of Jerusalem, culture of Jerusalem from a different perspective. So that's why Armenian, being an Armenian from Jerusalem, it's a unique trait, I should say, that's different from Armenians of Paris. So, you know, most of the other Armenian communities are newly established communities outside the Middle East, let's say. Uh, but Jerusalem has, uh, has a history of thousands of years. Even in Armenian pilgrims who came, you would find their, their you know, you would, you would find their epigraphies on, uh, on, uh, on, uh, in, in, in some of the caves in the Sinai uh, desert. You know, and uh, again, uh, these are uh, important uh, factors which uh, which people don't know actually usually because from outside there is a kind of a misperception of who are, uh, who are Armenians. Once upon a time, uh, there was uh, there is this professor uh, from Jordan who teaches in an Ivy League school. Uh, when he found out uh, that I'm Armenian, he said, oh, Armenians, yeah, I know, ceramics and lahmacun, you know, it's like degrading us to uh, to the level of uh, one, uh, one uh, ceramic and another uh, food. But that's not the case. Uh, Armenians uh, uh, represent a very rich culture, uh, specifically those uh, who were part of the Ottoman Empire. We have thousands of years of history both uh, academic, intellectual history, cultural history, political history, religious history. And as a matter of fact, uh, if you know the Ottoman Empire, you would find out that the Armenians represented one of the most important advanced intellectual elite within the Ottoman Empire in terms of publications. Thousands of Armenian newspapers were published in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, books, literatures, not only in Armenian language, but also in Armeno-Turkish, which is uh, which is Ottoman written in Armenian uh, letters. That's another kind of identity. So you have multiple identities playing around in the Ottoman Empire. And, and what we have today, as a matter of fact, within Jerusalem, is kind of the uh, inheritance, the legacies of the Ottoman period. I mean, if you walk into in Jerusalem, it's, you, you will feel the Ottoman legacy there. I mean, with the neighborhoods, with the identities, with the... And of course, one important thing that all of us know that with the arrival of the British, uh, these identities were this, they were uh, detached from their national or communal uh, uh, importance and were re-emphasized the millet system, uh, putting more emphasis on religious uh, representation. And of course, this is what we have today, which is the religious representation, which I do not agree with. I think there needs to be a kind of the communal representation of, of the communities within Jerusalem. The same with the Greek uh, Arab Orthodox and the Arab Orthodox is a different case. So we can discuss that more if you're interested. But but what the British did in order to divide and conquer, as you know, they emphasized the religious importance of all the communities. Hence, you have you don't have a they, you know, they rejected the Palestinian executive, whereas they accepted the Zionist uh, executive. And all of these aim to kind of uh, prevent a unified representation of the Palestinian community. When I say Palestinian community, I'm not only saying uh, Muslims, but also Palestinian Christian as a unified representation. But they, what they did, they created the Muslim uh, sacred, Supreme uh, uh, Council appointing Hajj Amin al-Husseini, as you know, and this was a technique of divide and conquer. And that's why whatever we have today as religious representations uh, is based on the legacy of the British, parts of colonial uh, identity, parts of colonial techniques of divide and conquer, and, and which gives the utmost authority to the religious entities who none of them actually are born in Jerusalem, the same with the Greeks, except the lower parishes in the Greek, actually the most prominent in the Greek case is Hannah Atallah. But in the case of the Armenians, most of them come from different parts of the, of the globe. They're, they're not born in Jerusalem and hence 
there is I, I don't feel there is a strong connection to Armenia, Jerusalem, or or to Palestine uh, per se, or the Palestinian land. Hence, in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of um, a lot of scandals within the uh, Armenian community, Armenian patriarchate of selling lands to settlers and others. And uh, and uh, until today, the Armenian community doesn't have any voice within the decision making process. The same we could say about the about the Orthodox uh, community, but the difference between the Armenians and the Orthodox Arab Orthodox is that you have an indigenous Arab Orthodox community, which is different from the identity of the Greek Orthodox ecclesi ecclesiastical hierarchy, which comes purely from Cyprus and Greece. Whereas Armenians are Armenians, the same and identity-wise are the same actually. So that's the only difference. And if you think about it today, the uh, only community which is really, really pushing and trying to sustain its community is the Latin patriarchy by uh, establishing uh, uh, housings, building housings in Bethanina and other places in order to sustain their community, creating scholarships and many other projects. Uh, you know, they have conservatoires which my nieces attend and so they're really to take good care of their community understanding armenian identity is a complex thing uh, and from the palestinian perspective i think there is a, a lot of appreciation for armenians specifically the armenian contribution to jerusalem uh, in the post 1915 period uh, in terms of bringing professions shoemaking goldsmith, tailors, uh, uh, silversmith, many other professions, photography, ceramics, and of course, Armenians are very famous in photography uh, in Jerusalem uh, from the, uh, the first photographer, Armenian photographer who introduced photography was uh, Patriarch Yesai in the 1860s. And thereon, you have the beginning of a major venture of photography bringing, bringing from Germany and the panoramas that were taking of the old city of Jerusalem. So a kind of a major contribution of Armenians to the, to the, to the culture of the uh, Palestinian culture of Jerusalem, less so to the Israeli culture, I should say, more so to the Palestinian uh, culture. So, uh, and there is a lot of appreciation, I should say, from the Palestinian community, uh, but the Palestinians in general, gen general towards, the, uh, towards Armenians, and uh, I've never seen any discrimination actually from the Palestinians towards Armenians um, uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, uh, so there is a lot of appreciation, but again, there is also a kind of uh, quote unquote ignorance about the internal dynamics of the Armenian community. As you know, Armenian community is, uh, uh, despite the fact that we have community, but also the community within itself is divided into political uh, political parties, which mirrors the other diaspora and political parties. And there is another point here, Roberto. I, I'm, I'm not sure if we can call Armenian Jerusalem as a diasporic community. This is another thing that well, we can discuss about theories of diaspora. And, you know, uh, one of the most important theoreticians of uh, Armenian, of, of diaspora in general, is Khachik Tololian from Wesleyan University. And uh, he is the founder and the editor of the, the, the journal Diaspora, which is published by University of Ter Toronto Press, uh, backed by the Zorian Institute. And uh, he just uh, recently stepped down. And we have two new editors, Talar Shahinian and Sosi Kasparian, in order to explore not only the Armenian diaspora, but also the idea of the di di diasporic communities globally from the Tibetan to the Chinese to the Arab diaspora, but I'm not sure yet whether Armenians of Jerusalem could be called diaspora. But again, there is dual type of dual type dual type of loyalty here. One is loyalty to the land of Jerusalem that you live in, but there is also another loyalty towards another another Armenian loyalty, which is Armenia today. All right. And again, there has been a lot of disappointment uh, and angry by the Armenian communities of uh, both uh, Palestine and Israel towards uh, the Israeli government uh, by selling 
weapons to Azerbaijan and, you know, uh, Turkish, Israeli and Turkish, uh, Turkish uh, uh, and uh, Israeli Azeri relations are very, very uh, close in terms of uh, economy, like oil and military. And uh, again, one thing I always would like to emphasize here is that uh, Palestinians usually think that Erdogan is the, is the, some of them usually call him the the caliph or the 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 leader of the Palestinian or the Arab world be with his in a, ability of defying the colonial powers, defying Israel, defying everything and saying whatever he wants. But it's just saying it's not doing anything. It's meant for internal consumption, external consumption. But if you think about it, there is close relations, military, business relations with Israel and uh, and other and other Western countries. So uh, again, that's something that's also Turkey is having a lot of influence over East Jerusalem today in terms of uh, buying or selling, uh, you know, in terms of backing Palestinians. But again, uh, I don't think it's a sincere thing. I think it's uh, politics aimed at uh, aimed at internal consumption, external consumption. When you speak, when you speak about uh, oppression, First of all, you have to speak about the oppression that you are initiating on your minority communities within your own countries and then lead by example, they say, and then talk about the oppressions of others. Uh, so. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, you were just saying something about, it made me think about a conference uh, I went a few years back, uh, organized by the Turkish government, and... Uh, I chose to go because I was really curious about the narratives they were going to present. And uh, I remember that distinct feeling of, you know, talking about Kudus, Jerusalem, Jerusalem in Turkish, but also forgetting about the reality 
or the relationship between Turkey and Israel, not only the number of flights that take place on a daily basis, but also the fact that exactly at that moment, the new palace, the new presidential palace, which I, I remember calling the imperial palace, the entire security was actually built by, the, by an Israeli company. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of like gives you the sense of uh, there's a rhetoric and then there's a the reality. And talking about reality, I'm curious about one thing. You talked about this idea of the legacy, the Ottoman legacy in Jerusalem. And, and I'm sure many listeners or, and, you know, those who go around Jerusalem, when you bump into the Armenian quarters, which I must say often is neglected just because uh, people undertake different kinds of tours of Jerusalem. But there's a striking image uh, walking around uh, the Armenian quarter. It's, there is this uh, small tunnel and uh, you get to see tons of uh, posters. Uh, and these are maps of uh, basically the Armenian genocide, which is a reminder of something that happened. And, and I think is, is an important reminder for people uh, about the Armenian genocide, but also the connection between Jerusalem and its history. So I was wondering to what extent the Armenian genocide affected the Armenian quarter and affected Jerusalem as a city. We are going to take a short break. Thank you for listening. And remember to join our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram account. If you have a story about Jerusalem that you want to share or someone that you want me to interview, please get in touch. Enjoy the rest of the show. Very good question, Roberto. As a as a teenager, I was uh, I was part of uh, our group who put these maps on on the wall. But you know, it's kind of a inheritance. You know, and the younger generation takes over in order to keep the uh, memory alive. I should say, memory alive for the visitors. Of course, some some sometimes you have these uh, settlers. Who would uh, uh, rip them off? And there has been few incidents uh, incidents that uh, they wrote on these maps. Uh, you deserve things like this, you know. And uh, and of course, there is there, there is a lot of tensions. Uh, usually, Armenian priests are uh, are attacked by settlers living in the Jewish quarter. They spit on them, etc. And there is a lot of kind of discrimination, and we don't see any measures being taken by the uh, Israeli government, and that's a different topic we can discuss uh, later. Uh, it's a discrimination par excellence, I should say. But coming to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is an important city for the survivors of the Armenian genocide. It, it was the most important city, I should say, in the Middle East because it housed thousands and thousands of people who, who survived the Armenian genocide. Jerusalem is the place that housed three to four orphanages where Armenian orphans were raised for a few years, including my wife's grandmother, who was a survivor from Van. Her name was Diruhi. And uh, my wife is from Baghdad, actually. And uh, I met her about uh, in 2009, but I didn't know actually by uh, back then that her mother, her grandmother was born and uh, was uh, not born, was an orphan in Jerusalem. And there are many stories of, of Armenians who were orphaned in Jerusalem and raised in the orphanages in, uh, in, the, uh, in the Armenian culture, but also in the, in the Greek uh, Holy Cross Church uh, near the Knesset, as you know. And uh, so these orphans, uh, uh, these orphans eventually went to different parts of the world. Some of them went to Cyprus to attend the Melkonian school there, which housed orphans and gave them excellent education. I knew few orphans, uh, you know, passed, they passed away, most of them in the 90s, but they were all orphans. But the Armenian Patriarchate of Jerusalem in the aftermath of the of the Armenian genocide played a monumental role in housing, sheltering, providing food to the Armenian survivors. Today, the Armenian culture has about 500 members, maybe. Back then, 
it used to have 5,000 to 6,000 members living in the Armenian culture. And genocide plays an important role for the Armenians of Jerusalem in their identity, as, as, as well in other identities, as well for the Armenians of the other. But there is kind of a physical presence there too, of the remnants of the memories of the Armenians of, uh, of the of the uh, of Jerusalem, the remnants, the 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 buildings which house the Armenian uh, Armenian orphans, the buildings, these old small rooms that housed families of two or three small rooms, people who survived and escaped the genocide. So there is a kind of a very important deep collective memory of Armenians of Jerusalem being the inherit the, the being the inheritors of these types of uh, these, these type of collective memories. But also there is an important fact here, which is the struggle for recognition by the state of Israel of the Armenian genocide. The state of Israel, it's not only that it does not recognize the Armenian genocide, it oscillates between active denialism to passive denialism, to soft denialism, hard, there is, you know, in Holocaust there is hardcore denialism, to softcore denialism, so Israel oscillates. And now I'm, edit, I'm finished editing a book on uh, denial of genocide, and there is a, an Israeli scholar by the name of, uh, of Eldad ben Aharon, actually, who wrote a fascinating article demonstrating how Israel actually uses the Armenian genocide as a pressure card in Turkey, making sure that whenever it passes the bill, whenever it puts the bill on the, on the, on the table of the Knesset, it leads to some type of a pressure on Turkey, and there is a deal that goes on under the table to remove that bill. But the idea here is that they are 100% sure that whenever they put the bill, the bill is not going to be passed. So it's kind of a gesture, kind of a political gesture. The only political party which was really dedicated for the Armenian genocide to pass a bill was the Meretz party, the late Chaim Oron. I don't know, I don't want to... Yes, the late Chaim Oron, who is the brother of Yair Oron, who wrote an important two books about the denial of the Israel and the Armenian genocide, of the Armenian genocide. But today, the Armenian genocide is being used by right-wing parties, uh, you know, Israel Beitenu and the, or uh, Yahadut, uh, Yahadut party, uh, just solely to, uh, to uh, put pressure on Turkey whenever Turkey starts yelling about uh, uh, Israel committing genocide or the, the, that thing. Even, for example, uh, Netanyahu's son, Yair Netanyahu, tweeted about that. You know, uh, uh, I mean, there is no there is no sincere approach uh, to the Armenian genocide. And there is a lot of disappointment by the Armenians, not only for the genocide, but also for the active participation with the uh, Azeris in 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 selling them weapons during the uh, during the uh, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh war that took place last year. So Armenian identity is connected on multiple layers, Jerusalem identity, Palestinian identity. Then you have the Israeli identity in, the, in Jaffa, Haifa, and Tel Aviv. But also there is new identity, which is the Armenians of Petah Tikva. Those Armenians who came after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there is kind of a new identity there. And then there you have another loyalty to Armenia, and then to Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So all of these create a kind of a complex hybrid identity within Jerusalem with multiple loyalties and there's the survival ga game and there's a balancing game. And uh, so it's a, it's a complex thing and it's, it hasn't been studied by thoroughly by, uh, by an anthropologist. Uh, it has, there have been few rudimentary work that has been done, but I think now it's a much more complex situation and uh, so uh, it's a fascinating case of study, I think, that needs to be analyzed and deconstructed. You mentioned number and how the community basically got smaller and smaller. You talked about lands, you talked about uh, multiple identities, and I like this idea of micro differences. So I was wondering, what are the challenges in the contemporary period for both Armenian Jerusalem and Armenians as people in Jerusalem? Uh, the main challenge of Armenians in Jerusalem has to do with housing. It's extremely difficult to find housing 
and the, I don't see the Armenian Patriarchate initiating major projects such as the Latin Patriarchate of building housings for Armenians. And uh, as you know, buying a house in West Jerusalem is extremely expensive. We're talking about uh, more than half a million dollars for a 70 square foot apartments. And uh, no wonder that Palestinians are not able to get any permissions. And then you have uh, demolitions of homes after home because, first of all, the Israeli government would never, rarely, they would provide you with a permission, license to build. And providing a license itself is about two to $300,000, if not more. And then you don't have an option, then build your own house which is considered quote-unquote illegal by the Israeli government, and they demolish, uh, whereas in West Jerusalem, you can build anything you want, as you know. I mean, it's part of the discrimination, segregation, and we all know about that. But uh, Armenians today suffer the problem of housing, and that's why the community is shrinking. But to that extent, we have to also think about the immigration of Armenians uh, to uh, other parts of the world. The major blow to the Armenians of Jerusalem began in 1948 as, as the war. Their houses were confiscated by the uh, Israeli uh, government, 1948, followed 1967, but then the first Intifada and the second Intifada. So if you want me to rank the reasons for the diminution of the Armenian community, I'll start with 1948. Then 1967, the Nakba and the Naksa, and then in during the 90, during the first Intifada, because most Armenians of Jerusalem actually were earned their living through tourism, and they were goldsmith and uh, photographers, ceramicists, etc. So these are connected to tourism, and during the first Intifada, everything collapsed. Once upon a time, 90% of the shops in the Christian quarter and outside the old, old Jaffa Gate used to be owned used to be owned by Armenians. 90%. The whole goldsmith market was run by Armenians in the in the uh, in near the Dabara uh, Street, and most of them left. Today, you have a handful of Armenians who are there only, you know, and they. And they, uh, you know, there's today with COVID, it's a more dire situation. But for the Armenians uh, in the in in Haifa, Yaffa, uh, situation is much better because there is a there is more kind of uh, coexistence there, uh, quote unquote coexistence. But we saw what coexistence the in the face of coexistence with the recent events. There is a discrimination, I should say, in, in, in these parts of the cities, but it's more dormant discrimination, not like uh, East, East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem is a very difficult place to live in, very, uh, very segregated and very discriminatory place. It's very difficult to, uh, to buy a house, I should say. You need to be a multimillionaire to be able to buy a house. Uh, uh, a regular house, which, which we would consider a regular, a regular house here in the United States, small house. Uh, rents are very expensive. You can't afford rents in West Jerusalem. We're talking about $1,500. And as you know, uh, Armenians are not, uh, are not rich in all city of Jerusalem. Uh, half of the Armenians work with the Armenian Patriarchate and the Armenian Patriarchate, that, that's quarter, not half. The rest have their own private businesses, which are connected mostly to the tourism industry. Once upon a time, you had major Armenian photographers. Today, as far as I know, uh, the only one who's left is the legendary photo Elia. Uh, the Elia Kahavejan, the legendary photographer of the interwar period. And his grandson uh, is running the business until today. And uh, to that extent, uh, the uh, Armenian community has also declined due to the fact of the closing of borders with the neighboring communities, with specifically Lebanon and Syria. 
And during the Jordanian period and the, and the interwar period, uh, Armenians used to uh, used to commute freely from Jerusalem to Beirut, to Damascus without any obstacles. And after 1967, this trend was uh, halted due to the uh, to Israel. And this was important because when you have a small community, you have limited options of, of marriage. Hence, uh, a lot of Armenians used to get married prior to 1967, 1948, with Armenian, both women or men, from uh, the communities of uh, Lebanon and Syria. My mother was born in Lebanon, for example, and she, my both parents were born in Lebanon, my father was born in Lebanon too, but he's at the age of one, he came to uh, Palestine at the time. But uh, again, these trends trends stopped, and now we have a new trend of Armenians now getting married with Armenians, either from Armenians from Armenia, and then you have a major pain in the neck of a bureaucratic procedure, which is a, a discriminatory procedure of family reunion. As you know, this is the same regarding the Palestinians too, for those who are in the West Bank, wants, or those who are in, in, the, in, in Israel, wants to get married with, uh, 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 with Armenians, oh, sorry, with, with, with their relatives in the West Bank or Gaza Strip. You know, it's a, it's a major monumental, uh, uh, monumental task. You have to go, you have to hire a lawyer, thousands of dollars go, whereas an Israeli who wants to marry, bring in the, another spouse, uh, you know, you just make an aliyah and it's a it's a one week procedure whereas if you if you are a citizen and you want to marry an armenian from armenia it's a major procedure it's a multi multi multiple year procedure this is part of the discriminatory process actually uh, aimed at aimed at, aimed at uh, doing their best the israeli government's demographic demographic technique as you, as you know i mean there is nothing secret here every i mean everyone knows about that so these are parts of the challenges, actually. And uh, if you ask me, I think we need uh, the leadership in Jerusalem, which, uh, which is only uh, ecclesiastic leadership, to really step up to the challenge and see what the Latin Patriarchate is doing and follow in the footsteps of the Latin Patriarchate by preserving the community, by encouraging the community, by, uh, by building houses for the community and not only confine themselves to these small shackle, uh, shabby houses that exist in the old, in the Armenian convent, which uh, does not is not able to house even uh, a couple actually because it's so small. Once upon a time, it used to house during the post-genocide period the whole family itself, but now times have changed, and uh, for Armenians to go out, the only option is to leave Jerusalem and go to Tel Aviv, Haifa, or Yaffa. And that means you are really detaching yourself from a, an identity that you've been born to, which is Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem identity, leaving your friends and family and going and starting a new life, which is not a new life per se, but still it's considered a new life in a different city where uh, it's not part of that old city culture of the Palestinian Arab culture or Islamic Christian culture. It's a different type of culture. You mentioned the leadership, and I really wanted to ask you, you know, briefly, I understand the complexity of the topic, but what is the role of the Armenian church, uh, you know, in, in Jerusalem and also dealing with the Armenians in Jerusalem and also dealing now, you know, in the contemporary, dealing with the, with the state of Israel? The Armenian, the Armenian patriarchate has uh, priorities. Its first priority is to preserve its right in the holy places, because this is the St. Saint, Saint James Brotherhood. It was established in the 14th century. It is, uh, a patriarchate was established in the 14th century. Before that, in the 7th century, we had a bishop in Jerusalem, but eventually, first aim is to preserve the Armenian religious rights in Jerusalem based on the status quo. Uh, post uh, the Crimean War, and uh, to to uh, to preserve a strong ecclesiastic presence by running its institutions, most importantly the uh, seminary, 
which once upon a time used to uh, bring students from Turkey, followed by Lebanon and now from Armenia. The aim of this seminary is to keep the kind of the soldiers, the Armenian ecclesiastic soldiers who would protect the Armenian presence in Jerusalem, ecclesiastic religious presence, and uh, and whoever and they it's a, a kind of school actually it's a seminary where they learn everything and they graduate to become either uh, either priests or part of the brotherhood but most of them actually after graduation leave back to armenia the whole idea is that if you have 40 students and you can get two priests after them that's a that's an achievement so the Armenian Patriarchate runs major institutions. These include, but not limited to, uh, to the Armenian school, both schools, ecclesiastic and national school, the Armenian library, Gulbenkian library, the Armenian museum, which is going to be open very soon with the new kind of design, hopefully attract more tourists in order to teach them about the Armenian history. And Armenian history is not about genocide, it's about thousands of years of culture, about uh, language, about heritage, uh, legacies. Uh, then you have the Armenian uh, manuscript library, which is the most important library, manuscript li library after Armenia, after the modern Ataram, the Armenian National Library, uh, Armenian Library in, in manuscript library in Armenia. And then you have uh, the seminary school, and then you have a major important thing of an access of income is the Armenian real estate, which is mostly housed in West Jerusalem. And I think these real estate is an extremely important, very contentious and critical uh, critical issue for the Armenians in Jerusalem in, in general. Uh, many years ago, I wrote an article, what, I don't know, 15 years ago, called Reform in the Armenian Quarter of Jerusalem, which I suggested that there needs to be transparency about dealing with real estate. Because anything happens with the real estate is that the Armenian community would be the forefront paying the price for it. Whether you know, it's a, it's a very critical issue, and uh, I do still believe that there needs to be transparency. There needs to be a lay community body uh, who would, in tandem, play the role of either advisory council to the real estate body. But uh, recently, there has been a, a lot of discontent by the Palestinians, and this is not something secret. You can find it on Facebook of uh, Armenian patriarchate uh, making deals with the municipality. And I'm not going to go into details here, but uh, everyone knows about this. And Armenian patriarchate issued a few, few statements denying these uh, allegations or claims, but uh, uh, future would be, uh, would show what's happening actually. But uh, that's why I think we need a lay body to work with the real estate uh, director and the, uh, and the committee in order to make sure that such things do not happen. Because it did happen in the 70s and 80s, the prime real estates of the, of the Armenian patriarchate went to uh, either settlers or Israeli municipality or Israeli government or Israeli real estate uh, agencies and, uh, and uh, millions of dollars were skimmed. And this, this, this is not only endemic to the Armenian Patriarchate, as you remember, it happened also in the Greek Patriarchate with the most important, the Gloria Hotel, uh, the, the, you know, near the Jaffa Gate and the Petra Hotel, and still, I don't know what happened with it, it's in dispute. Uh, it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided that the, uh, that the purchase was legal by the Israeli settlers, and, you know, so in order to avoid these types of things, I think we need to have more transparency as to happening because uh, the last thing we, uh, we would like to hear is that Armenians are traitors and they, uh, they sold the cause, whereas Armen Armenians, Armenian community in general is, 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 very, is, is part, of the, part and parcel of the Palestinian culture and the, and the, uh, of Jerusalem and Palestinian cause. 
and that that's part of it i think that's that's the very important aspect to try to include the armenian community in the decision making process of the armenian patriarchy we're running out of time but i have two more questions sure go ahead. one is very much about your work you've wrote about your first book shattered dreams of revolution was very much about the 1908 uh, constitutional revolution in the ottoman empire and then the uh the second book that you have, it's, and I mentioned at the beginning, the co-edited work, uh, Routledge Handbook on Jerusalem, which I really suggest all of the listeners to get a copy because you get a good history of Jerusalem, but not also from a chronological point of view, but also from a thematic perspective. What's next? What's the next project? Actually, I co-edited, I co-edited another book, which is uh, Challenges, uh, uh, in Western Armenian in the 21st century um, with Barlow Dermagurdichan, uh, published by the press at the California State University of Fresno. There was another book of the Armenian, uh, I, I, I edited another book on, uh, which, which was published last year, which is called uh, Armenian, the Republic of Armenian in its centenary, uh, politics, gender, and uh, culture, I think. But there are two, books that are forthcoming. One of them is called The Horrors of Adana, uh, which is about the Adana massacres. It's in production now. It's going to be published by Stanford University Press in March. And there is another book that I edited. Hopefully it's going to be published next year by, uh, uh, which is done actually, We're going to be published by uh, University of Nebraska Press. So there are two books in the pipeline. One of them is in production coming up in March, uh, March of 2020, which is, uh, I think, I consider an important book of uh, reanalyzing the Adana massacres that took place in 1909 in the region of Cilicia. It's called Violence and Revolution at the end of the, uh, in the beginning of the 20th, 20th century. Uh, otherwise, uh, projects, I'm thinking now of concentrating on uh, back to uh, Jerusalem, analyzing uh, intercommunal relationships, because, because I have an advantage, not only linguistic advantage, but being part of, as, an, as, an, as a subject also, you know, growing up in that history. And uh, a lot of things haven't changed in, in terms of inter, interactions and maybe Times have changed, politics have changed, but still the basis remain there, you know, neighborhoods, communities, and I would like to pay more attention to that. My last question takes you back at the very beginning. You mentioned your grandmother and you mentioned food. So I was wondering, is there any Armenian Jerusalemite food that you are missing while you're sitting in Lincoln, Nebraska? Uh, don't open my wood, wounds, please. <laughs> I miss my mom's foods, uh, food actually, which because uh, she learned it from my grandmother. So it's kind of uh, uh, it's uh, my grandmother. See, my mom also is from Marash, you know. So the whole family is from Marash. Uh, you know, mother's side, father's side, they're from Marash. So there is the Marash, Marash, uh, uh, Marash cuisine actually. Which is has to do with the uh, crack wheat, uh, uh, crack wheat, uh, yogurt soup. Uh, there is the uh, 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 there is the uh, 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 the uh, zucchini, zucchini stew. Many lahmacun, for example, the köftas. Uh, there is tons of things I miss actually, and but also. I have to. I have to. I have to. Uh, frankly, say that I miss the hummus of Abu Shukri, uh, which is in the old city of Jerusalem. And I did grow up like ten meters from that place. And our you would see our our uh, our balcony. If you you stand, you will see Abu Shukri from our ba balcony. Actually, it's uh, and that's kind of my pilgrimage too when I go there. Their hummus and falafel are excellent, and of course, uh, it's uh, uh, I, I do have four places that I visit on hummus: is Abu Shukri, it's Lina, it's Camel, and it's Arafat. 
all of them are the most important hummus places within the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, falafel is the same, Abu Shukris is the best, and uh, next is the shawarma. And shawarma is, is excellent, uh, you know, specifically the shawarma of Shu'le in East Jerusalem, in the Salah al-Din Street. So these are the two things that I miss outside the house, actually, and I'm looking forward to them, you know, because in the United States, whoever does hummus, whoever claims to be doing hummus, whoever claims is doing falafel is actually not close to anything. If you are from, from the heart of the, of the cuisine, then nothing would, be, would satisfy you except the heart itself. This was Bedros Dermatosian, currently Associate Professor of Modern Middle Eastern History at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, but more importantly, an Armenian Jerusalemite. Bedros, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Roberto, for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening to Jerusalem Unplugged. This podcast is currently commercial-free. There are no ads. The only possibility to stay this way is for you to please let your friends, your family, and others who may be interested in listening to Jerusalem Unplugged know about this podcast. Let's increase the audience and let's keep the podcast commercial free. Thank you for listening. Until the next one. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.